Okay, welcome. <clears throat> welcome to the Environmental Justice Report. I'm the producer and host, Janine Moloff. We have a really interesting show tonight, I I I'll tell you that. So right now, we have a couple of stories that I want to kind of preview for you before we get started. So we first off, first off, we have an interview conducted by Progressive News Network founder Rick Stezak. He's interviewing Karen Dwyer of the Stone Crab Alliance. Now, the Stone Crab Alliance, for those of you that are on that don't know about it, they are an environmental group. They're in based in Florida, and they've been fighting the good fight. Uh, it turns out that. We actually had a recent environmental win, maybe a small one, but a win nonetheless. Yay. And it basically is due to Stone Crab Alliance. So Rick has an interview uh, with Karen Dwyer of the Stone Crab Alliance. Uh, they were able to help stop an oil drilling permit in an area called, and I hope I'm pronouncing this correctly, Imokalee, Florida. Okay, so that's our first story. Should be a truly interesting and insightful interview. Our second story is our big story. And, you know, COP26 has come and gone. You know, it, I, ironically, it started the evening of Halloween. That should have been some sort of foreshadowing right there that this was going to be kind of a big fraud and a big joke, which it was. Um, so that's my story, the fraud of COP26 uh, and the fact that you know, why are we allowing fossil fuel reps, attorneys for the fossil fuel industry and lobbies, why are we allowing them into an environmental conference worldwide? It, it grants them a legitimacy they do not deserve, okay? And then finally, we have our new feature, and it's in both shows, both Progressive News Network, our Sunday show, as well as Environmental Justice Report. And that's our, I love this, Jackass of the Week feature, and this week it's going to be a special treat. So with that, I will give you Rick Spizak, Progressive News Network's founder, and his interview with Karen Dwyer of the Stone Crab Alliance. Here we go. Ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to welcome Karen Dwyer of Florida's Stone Crab Alliance, talking to us about a recent environmental victory in southwest Florida. Hello. Karen, how are you today? It's so wonderful to talk to you again. I'm good. How are you? Karen, I'm talking to you today about that amazing victory when the state of Florida actually stepped up and stopped a developer, stopped drilling in the Everglades. I think that's wonderful. Are we perhaps seeing the beginning of a new trend? Maybe the Florida Environmental Protection and Regulation System will actually begin to work to protect the environment. Karen, it sure would be nice that that would be a new trend, huh? That sure. I wanted to take an opportunity to talk to you because there's just not enough victories in the environmental work, and I think this is one well worth celebrating. It's far and few between. That's for sure. That's for sure. And I think it's so important that we do talk it up. Uh, we have found, uh, you know, over the years that uh, – the state of Florida, it doesn't always step up to the plate to protect the environment, to protect our water resources and the wildlife. So it's absolutely wonderful to talk to you about celebrating a, a, just a marvelous victory. And, and maybe can, can we even hope that it's a trend? I, I'd like to think so. How about you? 
<laughs> yes, we can at least hope. Well, that's for sure. Could you talk a little bit about kind of framing the issue? I know we were talking about drilling out there near Immokalee. It's going to impact a, a very uh, economically disadvantaged area. Agricultural workers live out there. Can you kind of talk a little bit about what the impact might have been? Right. The, the project was trend exploration. They had leased land from the colliers and they planned to drill an exploratory oil well near Amatli. It was two miles from the airport. And anyhow, Amatli, like you said, is the tomato capital of America, and it's a farming community of about 27,000 whose livelihood comes from really crops and cows. And the proposed drill site was um, located in the big cypress swamp watershed, that replenishes levels in the Everglades and fills the aquifers that we rely on for drinking water. And directly downgradient from the drill site would have been the Immokalee and Seminole Tribes well fields, as well as the new public water facility that will serve an additional 300,000 people in the um, future Eastern Collier villages. So it was it was imperiling you know the public water supplies those public well fields and as well as the wetlands because this drill site is surrounded by wetlands and their dep calls them emergent marshes they're um jurisdictional federal wetlands anyhow um the fear was that if containment structures fail as they did at the collier hogan well that the drainage ditches that lie adjacent to the drill site would have been a conduit for spills to contaminate not only the surrounding wetlands but also our surface you know our our surficial aquifers um anyhow so that was the location and there was a lot of people commenting we had the Amakli sewer and water district they were concerned about those public water well fields being contaminated and that they weren't notified of this project ahead of time and we also had um the other agency Southwater florida uh district they were so concerned about the aquifers that they were going to require this applicant to actually extend the cement casings you know as the drill in the pipes go down through our aquifers well they wanted them extended so that they could try to safeguard our water supplies and then we had nikki freed um who's the agricultural commissioner, she wrote a really nice letter asking them to deny because in part of the Immokalee, Coalition of Immokalee Workers, they're that farm worker advocacy group, and it would have put in peril, you know, the 27,000 farm workers that don't really have any other resources and they need that fresh water for the fields and for the agriculture and also just to drink. Um, so that was a really important letter because, of course, agriculture fuels our economy, especially down in Immokalee. It's not only the tourist industry, but agriculture as well. That's the second industry, and the second largest industry in our state. And anyhow, so it would have, you know, that would be the impacts to the community and to our water. They were also concerned about the depletion of our water supplies. Um, and members of the Big Cypress Swamp Advisory Committee, because when you have drilling actually in our big cypress swamp watershed they have to 
um, hold a meeting with the Big Cypress Swamp Advisory Committee. There are special rules and regulations in the oil and gas um, department up in Tallahassee for drilling in the Big Cypress. So anyhow, they were called and they raised a lot of issues about the depletion of our water supplies and the need for this particular applicant to draw water from um, deeper, more saline resources rather than using our potable drinking water, our prime drinking water resources, because each, the well could have used like 10,000 gallons a day of water. It was being permitted, you know, to use quite a lot that could have affected the farm fields with drawdown because it would be over pumping of the aquifer. And um, other things that were raised were, of course, the wildlife surveys. None of the wildlife surveys have been done about the critically endangered species that live there. And Fish and Wildlife pointed that out. And they also pointed out the um, Cornell from the Audubon, who is on the Big Cypress Swamp Advisory Committee. They went and walked the area, and they noticed um, gopher turtles, their burrows along the access road, but also on the drill pad itself. Many of them were undocumented, so there was a lot of discussion about how none of those surveys had been done to protect the gopher turtle as well as the caracara and the other species out there. And even the Seminole tribe was uh, very concerned about not only their well field, and their water resources becoming contaminated, but also because that's historic Miccosukee land and Seminole tribe land, the Gopher Ridge area, and they were concerned about the disturbance of ancestral sites, sacred sites, you know, that sort of thing. So they were calling for a special um, uh, study to be done um, by the Historical Society uh, before they did any excavation. So. Anyhow, it could have caused a lot of damage uh, to wildlife, wetlands, residents, um, you know, the list just goes on because you shouldn't really be having any, you know, new oil operations near our Everglades. It's just, this area is just too environmentally sensitive. It's too important agriculturally. We shouldn't be converting croplands into well fields, especially when you think of the larger picture of what's going on globally. I mean, Florida only produces uh, one sixteenth of a per of of one percent of all the oil in the nation. That's point zero 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 zero. That's six zeros. Point you know six percent of all that oil. So we produce almost no oil here in Florida, and of our uh, tens of millions of workers, only one thousand. Um, are employed by the oil industry. So economically, it doesn't make sense to imperil our agriculture or our tourism with new oil drilling, and uh, especially because we've got the climate discussion going on over in Glasgow this week. So this is a really appropriate time to have this denial hit the news because this is exactly what needs to be done. The state needs to stop permitting new oil operations. We've got the big companies like Exxon trying to uh, cut back on carbon emissions, and we don't need these smaller companies rushing in to fill the void because then the problem continues. We need everyone to take the climate crisis seriously and cut 
back on carbon emissions. Stop new oil drilling, especially in South Florida. It doesn't make any sense. We're just an interconnected network of waterways. And this is not what keeps our economy alive, not oil drilling. It's agriculture and tourism and the people who live here. So anyhow, we're, we're just celebrating this victory. It was uncharic, uncharic, charic. <laughs> yeah, it was unusual for the DEP to actually um, deny it because historically they haven't denied really any except for, you know, the one exception is the Cantor Well over in Broward County, but um, literally they usually rubber stamp these. But so this is a really um, great victory. Doesn't happen often, so we're celebrating for a day. Um, we just heard in the Miami Herald that Trend Exploration does intend to appeal the decision, um, which is sort of expected because it's fairly easy to file a petition for an administrative hearing. But we feel like um, the reasons DEP gave for denying this permit are really strong. Um, the public outcry is very strong. We've got a lot of stakeholders that are very concerned. So we feel like this particular uh, decision will hold because uh, I, I think, I don't know if you want me to explain further, but one of the, the reasons that they raised was really interesting. Um, and it has to do with Collier Resources. And Collier, of course, is the landowner. And so, DEP specifically in the denial cites the incompatibility of the landowner, that would be Collier, building a mega city in Eastern Collier, and then that same landowner citing oil operations directly upstream and within the municipal well field protection zone of those future 300,000 residents. And it's important to realize that uh, they're saying that Collier had 40 years to develop their mineral rights in Immokalee. And now that the county has approved the Collier's Rivergrass, Belmar, and Longwater, that would be the beginning, if you've been following the news down here, of Collier's megacity that is, has been described as the size of Manhattan, New Jersey, uh, Newark, and Trenton. And it's going to be rising to the east of us in Immokalee, and it's prematurely converting our croplands and rural lands, and the county has committed to paying for a new water and wastewater treatment facility as well as new roads and infrastructure for this planned growth. And so they're saying, yeah, they're saying, well, the Collier family can't then turn around and imperil this area with industrial oil operations. And so DEP is being very careful with words because there are very few reasons why they can deny a permit. So they're citing the rules and regs. But it's also a wonderful reason because Collier has created his own stumbling block, the megacity. He can, you know, he can either step back from building Eastern Collier or he can relinquish the trend site. And at least that's one way to read what the DEP has written in their denial. So while they denied on a lot of other counts, for instance, another reason, another strong reason they said is that there's absolutely no geological evidence of an oil play that would merit taking such a risk. There's no seismic data. All there are are just dry boreholes, which, if anything, argue for the lack of oil. So anyhow, the denial is really bold. And it's entirely out of character for DEP, as you well know. Um, and so it's it's surprising, and but it's also hopeful um, 
because now is the time that we have got to put a stop to these new oil operations. So we're really happy about it. We're trying to strategize and think about ways we can support and uphold this decision. And also looking for a way to see how we can use this victory to stop the new oil operations in the big Cypress preserve because we also have Collier, the same landowner, trying to um, drill two more sites in the big preserve. It's called the Nobles Grade and then the Tamiami Prospect. And right now there, they have applied for the wetlands permits for to put in access roads and drill pads. So now we're looking closely, and there are some large groups working on that issue, seeing how we can turn this victory into yet more victories to stop all new drilling down here, in all of Florida, actually. That's what um, Nikki Fried is calling for, no more oil drilling anywhere in the state. And I, I keep thinking, ironically, that we should send uh, some kind of award to uh, Governor Green DeSantis for not stepping in and grandstanding on this, but uh, I'm, I'm just uh, concerned that he's holding fire for the second part of the fight. But I'm I'm going to go ahead and be optimistic. It, it's just so wonderful. Uh, all the all the wonderful advocates for a safer, greener Earth. Uh, and as you said, how how remarkable in uh, the you know at the time of Glasgow uh, COP that that these guys are trying to drill more and and how even more wonderful the people who are supposed to be protecting the habitat, the panthers and and the people who live out there that they've finally stepped up. I, it's just wonderful news. Everyone involved should be congratulated. It, it's just marvelous, and let's hope that there's more of the same. Um, I, I'd like to believe that that mega city that's contemplated, um, besides more taxpayers giveaway, they are held to some responsibility for the kind of impact that's going to have on southwestern Florida's ecology and ecological environment. It's... Uh, you you know you put anything like that kind of number of people in a spot like that, uh, there's there just seems it seems fraught with such peril. It is it is, and it's being challenged in the courts. But it's it's criminal, Rick, because it's doubling the population of Naples. It's like it's it's taking all our rural lands that were protected under the rural lands stewardship area that's where they're located those areas were set aside to protect agriculture and instead they're wiping out agriculture they're converting it into development you know new homes villages that don't meet the criteria of anything that looks sustainable and it, and so it it is just awful it's heartbreaking um what they're doing because we're going to end up looking like Miami and Fort Lauderdale. We're going to have coast to coast development down here. And so it is greatly disturbing. And we've been trying to fight back against that. And there are a lot of groups that are opposing that, but unfortunately three of the villages have already been approved and now they're going to be challenged in court. But nevertheless, it's, um, it's just devastating uh, when you think of of unsustainable growth and where are we even going to get all that water to sustain anything like that? And our environment is so imperiled in Florida. I mean, when you think about the cyanobacteria, the red tide, the 
I mean, it just, the list goes on and on. And now you're going to bring more people into this imperiled environment and make it worse, you know, make it worse because we can't sustain that type of population. It's And, and you know, the solid waste, the liquid waste, the water draw, uh, it just, it seems like an ecological nightmare to try to build that, uh, that coast up. And of course, greed, greed has such a strong voice and such big wallet that, uh, too much of that just goes uh, goes by the wayside. Uh, I, I want to congratulate you for the long battle that you and so many in the Stone Crab Alliance and beyond have have waged for this for the environment in South Florida and uh, our future, right? The future of our children, but everyone's future. It's just right. Wow! But we want to thank you and everyone else too because. It's everyone working together, and we just want to repeat once again that if everyone does something, it will be enough. That just keep signing those petitions, keep writing those comment letters. They do make a difference. Um, this was a really quick campaign. This was only three weeks. We had almost no turnaround time to get those comments in. So uh, it makes a difference. Um, and even I think what we're seeing is something like a sea change maybe in the DEP. I'm hoping. I don't – you know what I mean? Because they denied Cantor. Wouldn't that be nice? Maybe they're actually getting concerned about the environment and realizing that we can't sustain this sort of growth or this sort of industry going on here. But anyhow, I'm optimistic, cautiously optimistic, but um, I'm hoping that we can at least hold the line down here. And then, of course, have the global community uh, step up efforts to reduce our carbon and meet all those uh, deadlines we need to meet so that we can continue to have a planet. Karen, thank you so much. Please give my warmest regards to John as well. You you two are such an important, pivotal point in, in South Florida's environmental activist community. Thank you so much for joining me for a few minutes. Karen, I can't thank you enough. Keep up the good work. Thank you, Rick. Bye. Okay, so that was Rick's interview with Karen Dwyer from Stone Crab Alliance. They had a win, a rare win, and it is definitely to be celebrated. I uh, want to remind everybody, tune in to the Sunday program because Rick has Rick Spisek has another interview with Professor Wendy Lynn Lee. Now, Professor Lee uh, we'll be speaking about the rising uh, occurrence of white supremacy and neo-Nazism and along with the increased uh, uh, academic censorship in our colleges and universities. And it's going to tie in with a big story, so it should be a very, uh, very important interview. So now we're going to move on to our big story. As I said before, COP26 in Glasgow has come and gone. And there's been uh, various coverage in the, what I'll call the mainstream or the lamestream media. You'll see corporate media, whether it's CNN, um, well, nothing good comes out of Fox, but also uh, NBC, ABC, so on and so forth. And they're all talking, they're all heralding that this was a great success. They're all yakking about the net zero nonsense, which, you know, this is an environmental show, okay, environmental po political show. And the fact is, net zero is a scam. Okay, we've talked about it before because net zero is basically, 
it's, it's the equivalent of giving a promissory note to somebody that you've wronged and saying, I will make sure that I only abuse you up to the same level I'm abusing you now and in the past. And we'll do some other things to make sure we don't abuse you beyond that boundary. That won't solve our climate problem. And, and I've talked about this many, many times because let's face the fact, we keep calling it global climate change. We need to be calling it global climate devastation because that's what it is. And the fact is you have all these corporate, in an air quotes, news media, um, pushing the corporate line, the idea that we can somehow mitigate this with net zero and with blue hydrogen, which is not the good hydrogen actually, and all this and, and cap and trade and, and carbon capture and all this other stuff, which is again that is net zero in these other instances are the equivalent of putting a Band-Aid on a cancer. Maybe it's a little better than a Band-Aid on a cancer, but not much. We have to switch over. We have to go to renewables. We have to cut our consumption. And we have to give people that are middle income and low income a way to switch over to renewables, give them some financial assistance, tangible financial assistance. So that's what the mainstream has been saying about COP26. We have some additional information, though, that the mainstream media just carefully avoided, okay? Because we know that the mainstream media loves to push this false equivalence fallacy, you know, that both sides have done some wrong, both sides have done some good. It's not true, okay? So just ditch it. Um, we do have a few mainstream sources like the BBC who actually did a pretty good job, but most of this is coming from... Uh, activist groups like Global Witness and Corporate Europe Observatory and some others. So let's go on. So this story starts the other day I received, I guess it was for fundraising purposes, uh, kind of this generic email from AOC. And, and I like AOC. I don't, you know, but this was, and I'm trying to see if I know who the person that sent this, um, just Team AOC. So they're talking about how she was at COP26 you know, and I'll read part of it, you know, quote, if we write off COP as useless and choose to ignore it, the consequences will be huge because the truth is the pressure from grassroots organizers is working, end quote, okay? And it goes on to say, quote, the commitments that came out of COP were much stronger than they would have otherwise been because of the pressure from the outside. In the negotiations, Alexandria saw global leaders at the highest levels being very concerned and nervous about public sentiment and about public sentiment and opinion. In prior COPs and climate summits, many of these leaders were not as worried because they didn't think people were watching. End quote. And all these are good points. Don't get me wrong. I agree. We need to keep putting pressure. And the more pressure that's put, eventually mainstream media will be forced to actually cover it. And this this email from Team AOC does mention, as I talked about a few minutes ago, the myth of net zero. To quote them, quote, net zero does not mean zero emissions. What it means is that by 2050, we will still be emitting fossil fuel. The net, and that's in quotes, 
The net theory goes that we will be investing in so much drawdown technology and practices that the amount that we draw down will be equal to what we're emitting, end quote. So it's basically net zero is just saying, look, we'll just keep it at the status quo. Well, the science has proven if you keep it at the status quo, we're still destroying the planet. So what AOC's team is saying is all very accurate. And they go on to say, quote, if the pace of emissions continues, I'm skipping around, we could reach four degrees of warming by 2100. At that point, half of all land mass on Earth will be uninhabitable to human life due to floods, drought, wildfires, sea level rise, et cetera, end quote. And it, and it mentions how governments have 30 years to address the problem. <clears throat> and there's this little factoid that her team includes that I really like. Quote, about half of all emissions on Earth have been emitted since the first episode of Seinfeld aired. We are we're tired of waiting, end quote. First episode of Seinfeld airing, I believe, was in 1992. So, yeah, they, all the points team AOC are making are totally on spot. No criticism at all. I guess, she, you know, they sent it because they don't want people to give up, and I, they want to keep this momentum of people remaining engaged, activists remaining engaged at the grassroots level. They want to keep that going, and God bless them for it. But for the purposes of this report, COP26 was a fraud, and now we're going to discuss why. So I have this piece here, and it is from, um, give me a second here, folks, because I've got a lot of information here. This is actually from um, UKCOP26.org, okay? Explain, well, what is COP26? Like, what is a COP? Okay. And the public relations spiel from the UK COP26 group is, quote, a pivotal moment in the fight against climate change. In November, the UK, together with our partners Italy, well, I guess in Italy, will host an event many believe to be the world's best last chance to get runaway climate change under control. Okay, and then it goes on to, you know, say COP26 is the 2021 United Nations Climate Change Conference. We all know this. COP actually stands, is an acronym that stands for Conference of the Parties. And the last significant one was in 2015, and it was the Par that's what they refer to as the Paris Agreement, okay? That was the Obama administration. That was, so when they're talking about that, that was the, uh, the COP agreement, Paris Agreement, that, um, you know, basically we, you know, the United States pulled out of, okay? So the important, somebody's trying to call and I'm going to ignore it. All right, so... The Paris Agreement in 2015, well, countries, excuse me, folks, I'm going to turn this ringer off. See if I can do that. There we go. So I don't have to listen to it. All right. So under the Paris Agreement, countries, they made a commitment to bring forward plans that were national in scope for each country, and they were going to determine how much they would reduce their own emissions, and this was known as an NDC, or a Nationally Determined Contribution. A lot of this still sounds very voluntary, though. You know, there is 
really no, very little acknowledgement yet of the sins of the wealthy northern and western countries against, you know, the suffering of the global south. And it needs to be there. So COP26, this is a PR piece, basically. And they even had a climate change conference of views called COI-16. Um, once again, this all sounds very lovely, but it's not serious. Okay, it just isn't. So COP26 explained, all right? Now, there was this statement where the people promoting COP26 said, quote, international climate summits are complex, end quote. This is me interjecting. They shouldn't be. Uh, they just shouldn't be. Um, when you look at the, just the nature of complexity, when you have a complex agreement, a complex no negotiation, you can't help wondering if the complexity is hiding deception. All right, because often it is. This is the teacher in me coming out. And the fact, because I, I talked for 30 years, so the fact is this. You know, the old rule of thumb was if somebody asks you a question, even a complex question, if you can't take it out of the jargon and explain it in plain terms, and all you can do is argue that it's complex and keep using the same old jargon in a circular argument, that means you either don't truly understand what you're talking about or you're practicing deception. It's one or the other, folks. I know the science is complex, but we're talking about negotiations based on what the scientists are telling us we must do to save the planet. And the negotiation part, including um, reparations to the global south, that shouldn't be complex. That should be very evident and very public and witnessed. Let's move on. Now I'm looking at this, and there's this other part in this, in this article, which again is from the UKCOP26.org. And you see this little note at the end of this little public relations fluff piece. And it says, quote, with thanks to our principal partners, and now, when you look at the principal partners, there's Unilever, which is, again, big corporate entity. Something I think called Aussie, Sky, Scottish Power, Sainsbury's, Reckitt, NatWest Group, National Grid, Microsoft, Hitachi, GSK. So bottom line is this. These are corporate partners. And, you know, there's nothing like incestuous power dealings to undermine trust and credibility. The fact is corporations should have nothing to do with this. These are governments trying to decide how to deal with this global emergency. And corporate entities realize that they have to obey the law like everyone else. And then we need to create strong laws that help us save the planet. So that begs the question, why are corporations involved in something like COP26 at all? Shouldn't governments be creating environmentally responsible laws and then actually enforcing them? Isn't the presence of these corporate entities somewhat like, I don't know, asking permission from the thieving class to have, you know, asking permission from the thieving class what they want in terms of laws? 
you know, excuse me, Mr. Thief, uh, what would you like in this anti-larceny law? That's what it sounds like. And this gets into one of the main objections, namely the corporate interests and their lobbyists outnumbered actual environmentalists and government reps at the COP26 meeting. Okay, and that is really vile. So let's get into first, there's a very short piece from Greenpeace, Greenpeace USA, and um, uh, Valentina Stackel assisted with the editing and the German translation for the article. So this is um, a, an article and it, and it just mentions some of the climate deniers, not just corporate entities, but some of the climate deniers that were involved in COP26 and allowed access. And they're talking about this girl named, that she's being dubbed as the anti-Greta Thunberg, okay, or the anti-Greta. And her name is Naomi Seibt. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it correctly or not, S-E-I-B-T. She's being funded by the climate deniers at the Heartland Institute. She's mentioned in this article because the Heartland Institute was allowed access and a presence at COP26, even though the Heartland Institute are some of the most vicious climate deniers in the world. So why were they there? So let's look at Heartland for a second. And this is an example of what went on in COP26 that you didn't hear about on CNN. Okay. So let's look at Heartland and their, their new teen star, anti-Greta, who also happens to be a neo-Nazi sympathizer, Naomi Seid. So um, apparently Naomi Seid is a, was a YouTube personality, and she's at the tender age of 19. She has marched with neo-Nazis. There's photos of her. She promotes white nationalists unapologetically. This was as reported by Inside Climate News and Greenpeace USA. Her mother, Carolyn Seidt, uh, is an attorney with the alternative Für Deutschland, which is Germany's far-right nationalist party that also has ties to neo-Nazis. So it looks like little Naomi learned her neo-Nazism at mama's knee. So this is the new anti-Greta. All right, so there is a connection between the white supremacy and neo-Nazism growing both here in the U.S. and abroad and climate science denial. There's a connection here. And the Heartland Institute um, is a libertarian group. It, it's been funded by a variety of sources. Uh, it, was, it had been funded very uh, strongly by the Mercers, and so, uh, you know, this is, it's pro-Trump. There's no guesswork here, folks. This is corporate coming together with climate science denial and white supremacist neo-Nazis, which is the epitome of the definition of fascism. It all comes together. So this is what they were talking about. Um, Heartland Institute is a major climate change denier. And there were two groups actually like this among several that were allowed, again, access into COP26. 
CFAC, and the Heartland Institute. Now, they also hosted an alternative side event. Um, but, you know, once again, this is the question, why were these climate deniers, climate science deniers, allowed access to COP26 when indigenous peoples and those from nations that are the most severely affected by climate change had a very difficult time accessing the conference. Why the discrepancy? Well, first, no why, but let's move on. And we have to kind of realize, too, that this is something that's really been ignored, all right, by the mainstream media. And if I'm kind of drifting a little bit, kind of bear with me. Here's the main theme. COP26, Conference of Parties, it's supposed to be about national, representat national representatives and obviously environmental groups trying to do something about the global climate devastation that is being caused by fossil fuels and some other things as well. While indigenous peoples and people from the nation most severely impacted by fossil fuel pollution were either having a very difficult time gaining access to COP26 or even denied access to COP26, climate science deniers with proven ties as well to neo-Nazis were welcomed and included and had full access. In addition to lobbyists for every fossil fuel producer known to man, as well as corporate attorneys that represent uh, fossil fuel and so on and so forth. They all had access. The climate science deniers and the, and the fossil fuel lobbyists and those that support fossil fuel literally outnumbered the national representatives and the environmentalists. You, you look at those numbers, and we're going to talk about them in a minute, and you can only call COP26 a fraud. <clears throat> so let's talk about the climate science deniers who flooded COP26 with their corporate lobbyists. From the smog, the worst of the worst, climate deniers were allowed into COP26. This was a piece written by Rich Collett White. The headline was, these 11 climate science deniers are attending the COP26 climate summit. Okay? There were 11 climate science deniers that were able to access passes to COP26. They included Myron Ebel, who is the head of uh, Trump's transition team at the EPA. The pres also, the president of the Heartland Institute was there, but they also held a rival conference in Las Vegas ahead of COP26 and the head of the UK's principal climate science denial group. All of these people and reps were among those who were given badges and full access to COP26. Let that sink in for a minute, folks. The delegates have access to the official Blue Zone area of the conference. The Blue Zone is where negotiations, which are restricted to government delegations and a variety of side events are being held. <coughs> 
excuse me. Why did they gain access to the blue zone? That's insane. That would be like, let's say, Jewish high holidays giving tickets to temple to a bunch of SS Gestapo men. You don't do that. So let's move on. <coughs> Sorry, folks. A lot of these climate science denial people were also speaking at that alternative two-day um, symposium, and they called it their Climate Reality Forum. And that was live stream, but the, the location of where they were doing it in the city was undisclosed. You know, when they call it the Climate Reality Forum, when they mentioned Seinfeld before, it reminds me of the Seinfeld episode where Kramer held his Jay Peterson reality towards that absurd, but it's also that dangerous. So while these climate deniers were allowed access into the blue zone, not as observers, but as participants, and I'm reading straight from this, quote, indigenous communities and low-income nations right of oh, this is me. Indigenous communities and low-income nations rightfully cry foul over the preferential treatment polluters and their propagandists have received. While the most dangerously damaged by the while the most dangerously damaged nations from the pollution of wealthy nations have had great difficulty gaining any access to this summit. This is COP26 comes off looking like a really cruel PR stunt. And there were some, some quotes from noted environmental groups. Okay? They were angry, and I can't say I blame them. Jennifer K. Falcon from the Indigenous Environmental Network was quoted. Quote, the fact that climate deniers are allowed space at COP while indigenous peoples are fighting to get inside to the performative functions of the COP. The world is on fire. Sea levels are rising. Food and water shortages are already hitting black, indigenous, and frontline communities of the global majority. And climate deniers are given direct access to world leaders to continue the status quo of killing our planet, end quote. I'd say mic drops, slam dunk. This lady caught it right there. Couldn't have said it better myself. Another, um, another environmentalist was quoted, Jean Sue. John Sue is the Energy Justice Director at the Center for Biological Diversity, said, quote, granting access to climate deniers adds insult to injury when countless climate vulnerable people have been refused entry into the politics of vaccine apartheid, end quote. And that comes into it also, okay? The people that come from nations where there is vaccine apartheid, where they cannot access the vaccine, are coming at much greater risk. Climate denial delegates that were listed at the COP26 include the following, and they are listed as attending. Of, you can go to the unfccc.int site. On behalf of the U.S. is the Committee for a Constructive Tomorrow, that's CFACT. There's also the Competitive Enterprise Institute, CEI. Now, both these groups have a long history of rejecting outright mainstream climate science. So why were they allowed to be there? Both of these groups also have previously taken funding 
from oil giant ExxonMobil. Translation, funding equals bribes. Again, why were they allowed access into COP26? Now, it's a rhetorical question. We know why. It's called political corruption. That's why we have to keep the pressure on. Now, the CFAC, or the Committee for Constructive Tomorrow, they issued a lie that was so, I'm just going to say, so effing stupid. It, 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 if it weren't so obscene, it would be laughable. Get this. CFAC, or the Committee for Constructive Tomorrow, they said that carbon dioxide was, quote, a harmless trace essential gas in the atmosphere that humans exhale from their mouth. I, I mean, what can you say after that? It's not just a lie. It's an incredibly effing stupid lie. And these people that are issuing these statements are pulling down the big bucks. There's more. The Competitive Enterprise Institute, or CEI, they were a little more subtle. They said that they claimed, according to um, CEI.org, you know, their own website, that climate models, quote, inflate greenhouse gas emission scenarios, end quote. And then CEI goes on to brag about how they've defeated any effort to bring some sort of reasonable climate legislation into the U.S., and they brag about it on their website. Then we've got Myron Ebel. Okay, if he weren't so foul and just slimy, you could almost pity him for having a name like Myron. Sorry, I couldn't resist. But Myron Ebel is the um, Competitive Enterprise Institute's Director of Energy and Environment. Okay. And he was chosen by Trump in 2016 to lead Trump's transition team at the EPA. And he's the guy, and keep in mind, he's the, he's the, he's a director at CEI, the same organization that says that we shouldn't be, that the EPA should not be allowed to regulate greenhouse gas emissions. Now, this ties into another piece that I'm going to be doing probably next week, and it's an upcoming uh, SCOTUS, the Supreme Court case, uh, simply known as West Virginia versus EPA, but it's a very dangerous one because it could dismantle the EPA's ability to craft regulations based on expert knowledge. In fact, it could go further than that. It could, that case could be used as precedent to dismantle almost any regulations in the government uh, and render those regulations back to Congress instead of in the hands of experts. I don't want medical regulations, for instance, in the hands of businessmen and lawyers in Congress. I want it in the hands of medical doctors and scientists. I don't want environmental regulations in the hands of business people, idiots, and lawyers in Congress. I want it in the hands of scientists. So that's going to be a really... A really important show. I want you to remain open to that. Um, so going on with the CER, the Center for <clears throat> the Center for Enterprise. What is it again? Wait a minute. The Competitive Enterprise Institute. I'm sorry. Uh, so the CEI delegation also included a man named James Taylor. Mr. Taylor is also, guess what, president of the Heartland Institute. 
Heartland Institute, one of the biggest climate deniers in the world. So again, why are these, these thugs being allowed into this conference? You know, and, and I don't want to hear double talk. I want to know the rationale. But it's also a rhetorical question. They should not have been allowed access. So there's another one. A man named Mark Morano was at the conference, and he is uh, CFAX communications director. You know, the was it the committee for uh, what was that one again? CFAX. Uh, come on here. Committee for Constructive Tomorrow. God, these names are truly weird. Um, and so Mr. Morano is CFAX Communications Director, okay, also known as Chief Propagandist. Let's say, let's call PR what it is. And Morano has some, uh, you know, he's got a history, all right? Uh, he has caused some problems and controversies at UN climate summits before. He was actually forcefully ejected from the 2016 talks in Marrakesh because he took part in an unauthorized demonstration where he ripped up a copy of the Paris Agreement. Okay, and that's as documented by Dismog.com. Um, Morano is also a former aide to U.S. Republican Senator James Inhofe. Inhofe has been uh, has been recorded as describing human-caused climate change as a hoax. Marana was interviewed uh, uh, last at that time on a UK radio station called Talk Radio, and he and this is according to Twitter.com Talk Radio. And in this this interview. Murado was claiming that, quote, global elites are planning COVID-style lockdowns to tackle emissions. Okay, you know, the time has come to take these people that are clearly slandering, libeling, and defaming, and we need to just take them to court and sue them for slander, libel, and defamation. Make an example of a couple of them, and maybe this nonsense will slow down at least. Again, why were people this ilk allowed into COP26 when indigenous people and people that are the most severely affected by climate change were either had a very difficult time gaining access or were denied access? There's more. CFAC's delegation included a man named Harry Wilkinson. Now, Wilkinson is the head of policy at Net Zero Watch, and that is a new name for what was previously called the Global Warming Policy Forum, Forum, as documented by the SMOG. Now, this is the campaign wing of the UK Climate Climate Science Denial Charity that was um, set up by former Tory Chancellor Nigel Lawson. Other CFAC delegates included Executive Director of CFAC Craig Rucker and Senior uh, Fellow Peter Murphy. And then we get back to this, this almost incestuous link between climate science deniers and neo-Nazis. So CFAC and the Heartland Institute, they ran this alternative conference besides having full access to the blue zone at COP26. And they had this alternative conference with, among others, a group called 
E-I-K-E, EIK, and that's affiliated with the far-right German party, a.k.a. the neo-Nazis. Okay, in fact, CFAC and Heartland, they, their alternative conference um, was alongside several Dutch and German climate science denial groups, Clintel and EIK, and EIK is the one that reportedly works for the far-right alternative for German party, in other words, neo-Nazis, and that's according to www.spiegel.de, now there's Der Spiegel, which is an excellent publication, actually. Um, some speakers at these alternative event included Christopher Moncton, who is a longtime climate science denier, and then, of course, drumroll please, Naomi Seidt, the anti-Greta. And she spoke about the, quote, evil motives of climate socialism, end quote. I wonder if the site realizes how utterly moronic she sounds spouting this stuff. Maybe she doesn't care. Um, you know, again, this is, there weren't any details about that alternative event. There is a live stream you might be able to access. Um, a man named Richard Black who was a former BBC environmental correspondent and also veteran cop attendee, who is now an honorary research fellow at Imperial College London, you know, was quoted as saying, quote, it's not unusual to see contrarians turn up at UN climate summits. In fact, it's pretty routine. But what is noticeable is how these days almost no one cares. Okay. Um, he added that, quote, now it really is a sideshow and irre irrelevant um, given that pretty much everyone else is talking about how to tackle climate change and the benefits of doing so rather than whether to, end quote. Perhaps. But once again, and this is something we're going to get to later in the talk, you know, this is, reminds me of what happened with the tobacco industry. You know, when the, when the story broke about the links between tobacco use and cancer, the... Um, you know, health groups, including the World Health Organization, didn't take any of it seriously until lobbyists and people from the tobacco industry were ejected and, and ejected from any conferences. As long as you allow these climate science deniers access to the conference, you're granting them basically a level of legitimacy that they do not deserve, feeding into their basically false equivalency argument. They should have been kicked out. <clears throat> but then again, they have connections to big industry, and it wasn't just climate science deniers. There were, you know, reps from big fossil fuel that walked the halls. They shouldn't have been allowed there. That's like having, I don't know, prisoners on death row monitor you know, what the jailers are doing. You can't do that. So to smog. This next piece was about Lord Lawson. Um, he's on Net Zero, he's a Net Zero Watch board member, and he was one of the ones that said, quote, global warming is not a problem. This is according to the smog blog, the smog international. Um, he is, and again, it's an MP backed Net Zero Watch campaign. You know, he went on to say global warming, quote, global warming is not a problem. Uh, and he went on to defend burning fossil fuels. 
And then he went on to claim that carbon dioxide's, quote, principal effect is growing plants. And no, I'm not kidding. It's, it's amazing how wealthy and powerful people can get away with being incredibly stupid and ignorant, and very few people challenge them on it. But when it comes to the destruction of our planet, we have a right to challenge these people. We have a right to remove them from what should have been a responsible conference, which it wasn't. Okay. Um, apparently, uh, these Lord Nigel Lawson, again, major climate science denier, he wrote an article uh, that was published in Spectator magazine. And again, it was predictable, denied climate science and rejected the need to cut carbon emissions. Um, and, you know, this is, the stupidity is beyond belief. So who is Lord Lawson? Well, he was, he was a government official. He was the chancellor of the exchequer under guess who? Conservative Margaret Thatcher. Just proof. Bad things keep coming back from conservatives like Margaret Thatcher. And Lord Lawson founded the Climate Science Denying Global Warming Policy Foundation. And that was, he founded that just ahead of the UN Copenhagen Climate Conference in 09. So, <laughs> anyway, uh, in the article, Lawson claims that, um, quote, so far from carbon dioxide being pollution, it is the stuff of life. And he also wrote, quote, that the principal effect of increased carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is to stimulate plant growth, end quote. Lawson added, um, he said that more CO2 emissions really just, quote, warm the planet slightly, end quote. He added, quote, there is, this is no bad thing. Many more people die each year from cold-related illnesses than from heat-related ones, end quote. Which just proves if you're wealthy and titled, you can be as dumb as a post and people will still publish you. Okay. Um, Lawson's article defends fossil fuels as, quote, the cheapest source of large-scale reliable energy. He claimed that, quote, the economic cost of abandoning fossil fuels would be massive. <clears throat> he added, quote, decarbonization, in short, would be an unparalleled, unparalleled economic calamity, end quote. He added that, quote, the current climate scare is a quasi-religious hysteria, okay, end quote. And he claimed that what he called climate catastrophism has basically usurped Christianity in the Western world. Well, apparently Lord Lawson doesn't realize there are other religions, first of all, in the Western world. I'm not Christian. I'm, I'm a Jew. But apparently only white Christians matter to him. I don't know. I don't know the man. But what I do know is if somebody on the left made these type of dubious claims, they would have been sued. They would have been laughed out of any intelligent discussion. But again, if you're wealthy and titled, you can still just look the other way. So there were some people that have rebutted some of this nonsense. So 
climate scientist Dr. Ella, uh, excuse me, climate scientist Dr. Ella Gilbert said the following, quote, the fact that the science of climate change is being debated and that prominent climate deniers are be, being given column inches to do so is utterly ridiculous. The science is settled. To quote the IPCC, as Lord Lawson does, human influence is unequivocal, and according to a 2021 study, more than 99% of scientists agree. To go on with Dr. Ella Gilbert, quote, the eye-wateringly expensive cost of net zero plans will pale in comparison to the cost of not mitigating climate change, both in terms of economic damages, but more importantly, in terms of lives lost and livelihoods ruined, end quote. <coughs> Excuse me, folks. Um, Dr. Gilbert added, quote, these claims and the climate-denying rhetoric of organizations like the GWPF are wildly inaccurate and completely irrelevant. Society has moved on, and the vast majority of people believe that climate change is a pressing issue. Meanwhile, Lawson is still trotting out prehistoric arguments about climate change that belong in the past with fossil fuels, end quote. She basically very politely called him stupid, which he appears to be. Okay, there's another another set of quotes here. Um, a man named Bob Ward, who is the Policy and Communications Director of the Granton Research Institute on Climate Change, and also with the Environment at the and the Environment at the. Let me start over. It's a long title. Woo. Okay, Bob Ward is going to be quoted right now. He is the Policy and Communications Director at the Granton Research Institute on Climate Change and the Environment at the London School of Economics. So his major field is how environmental issues affect the economy. Here's what Bob Ward had to say. And I'm going to explain to you the word daft, D-A-F-T, to the British means insane or insanely stupid. Quote, this daft article exposes the fact that Net Zero Watch is really just a front for tired old climate change denial. The argument put forward that carbon dioxide is mainly plant food has been thoroughly slain many times over. In short, Net Zero Watch and their cheerleaders at the Spectator are just dinosaurs who are recycling zombie talking points. I feel sorry for the poor old MPs who have decided to tether themselves to such a laughable outfit, end quote. Perfect. So the article ended with saying that both Nest Zero Watch and, Global, and the Global Warming Policy Foundation were asked for comment. They did not respond, which was probably the only smart thing they did by not responding. So we have enough, again, all this ties together because it's showing that COP26, for all the, the publicity in the mainstream media about how this was going to be this major environmental powwow, it was serious. You saw CNN talking about it, NBC, ABC. Um, you can keep going, right? It just wasn't. It just wasn't. Because... It was totally discredited, in my opinion, because they allowed climate science denialists and lobbyists for the fossil fuel industry full access to the blue zone where everything was going on. That was not only inappropriate, 
it compromised legitimacy of the COP26 talks, and it compromised the entire legitimacy of the UN trying to to, to negotiate uh, agreements agreements to save the planet. Okay, it just did. More of this nonsense going on from the BBC. You know, hardly left wing. COP26 fossil fuel industry has largest delegation at climate summit is the headline by Matt McGrath. Okay. McGrath goes on to say for the BBC, quote, there are more delegates at COP26 associated with the fossil fuel industry than from any single country. And now it's the shared with the BBC show. That says it right there. So one of the groups, Global Witness. Global Witness is a watchdog group for the environment and, and also a lot of other social justice issues. So Global Witness campaigners first assessed the participant list of COP26. Okay, and that is as documented on their own website, globalwitness.org. You can find it there. They found that 503 people had links to fossil fuel interests and that these people had been fully accredited for the climate summit. And these delegates were lobbyists for oil and gas industries, and yet the campaigners rightfully said that these people should not have been allowed access. They should have been banned. They're right. Uh, a representative from Global Witness named Murray Worthy explains, quote, the fossil fuel industry has spent decades denying and delaying real action on the climate crisis, which is why this is such a huge problem. Their influence is one of the biggest reasons why 25 years of UN climate talks have not led to real cuts in global emissions. Amen, brother. Okay. All right. So and there's a bunch of other things here. Like, for instance, they show uh, there's several visuals here. Uh, COP delegates associated with fossil fuel industries outnumber national delegations. And it really does. It's, I'm looking at this. The largest delegation aside from fossil fuel um, people was Brazil, then Turkey, then DR, Congo, Ghana, Russia, Kenya, Bangladesh, Canada, Sudan, and UK. So the next question that, that uh, Global Witness dealt with is, what counts as a fossil fuel lobbyist? And that's a legitimate question. So. Global Witness and another group named Corporate Accountability, they carried out this analysis and they defined a fossil fuel lobbyist, quote, as someone who is part of a delegation of a trade association or is a member of a group that represents the interests of oil and gas companies, end quote. And while that may seem to have widened the sphere, they're not, quote, registered lobbyists, it is accurate. If you're there and you're representing the interests of fossil fuel, then you are effectively lobbying for them, whether you're a registered lobbyist or not. This is an instance where the spirit of the law should really take precedent over the letter. Okay, they can't hide behind technicalities. Uh, so they found 503 people employed by or associated with those interests at COP26 that had full access. They also found some other things. One, and I'm reading straight from this, this is a direct quote. Quote, fossil fuel lobbyists are members of 27 country delegations, including Canada and Russia. Why are fossil fuel lobbyists part of a national delegation? 
Talk about a bastardization. Nobody from corporate should be part of a national delegation representing a government. None. That type of incestuous relationship is totally illegitimate. Another point they found was, quote, the fossil fuel lobby of cops larger than the combined total of the eight delegations from the countries worst affected by climate change in the past 20 years. So basically, they circled the wagons knowing they outnumbered them. Another point, more than, a, quote, more than 100 fossil fuel companies are represented at COP with 30 trade associations and members, membership organizations present as well. Don't tell me that COP26 was legitimate because it wasn't. And the UN could have prevented this by refusing to allow lobbyists, uh, people with even the slightest connections to the fossil fuel industry, corporate attorneys, all those people should have been banned, period. This should have been strictly government organizations. And yes, the, the interests of those who have been damaged by climate devastation and those environmental groups, because they're not getting anything out of it. They're not profiting from it. So this is the last fact, but I consider it the most obscene. Get this. Quote, fossil fuel lobbyists dwarf the UNFCCC's official indigenous constituency by about two to one. That's evil. All the time they had to prep for this conference and they couldn't fix this? Couldn't or didn't want to? They didn't want to. So, here is one of the biggest groups identified in that, in that fossil fuel lobby group, the International Emissions Trading Association, or IETA. They had 103 delegates that were attending COP26, and three of them were from the oil and gas company, BP. You know, BP, the BP incident, big oil spill, which was caused by massive negligence, you know. Now, according to Global Witness, the International Emissions Trading Association is, yes, backed by major oil companies. Of course they are. And why? Because the IETA, they promote the following. They promote offsetting and carbon trading as a way to allow them to continue extracting oil and gas. <clears throat> Again, Mr. Worthy, one of the environmental advocates, explained, quote, this is an association that has an enormous number of fossil fuel companies company as its members. Its agenda is driven by fossil fuel companies and serves the interests of fossil fuel companies, end quote. Of course it is. And when you're talking about carbon training, in other words, cap and trade, net zero, offsetting, like planting a lot of trees and stuff, again, it, this is all a way of continuing to use fossil fuel and trying to make it look like they're actually doing something constructive. You know, just trying to mitigate, just trying to offset the damage by keeping our polluting levels at the present level won't, isn't good enough. It won't work. Okay, a lot of the Arctic ice sheet has melted, releasing massive amounts of methane 
which is going to speed things up. We must cut consumption. It's it. You know, and it isn't just the Republicans. You know, Barack Obama pushed some of these these net zero scams. You know, and, and he had campaign contributors from the industry. So let's, you know, let's stop the nonsense. No more hero worship. Let's just tell the truth. So the COP26 is the United Nations Climate Change Summit. And, again, we should have taken a hint, you know, from one of the logos they had, COP26, net zero 2050. Wrong. The problem with net zero is the net part, once again. We must cut consumption. This set the stage. Okay? So... This is something where we're not going to make it unless we cut consumption and go to renewables. <coughs> Excuse me, folks. So, <coughs> so to go on again, um, I think this was from Mr. Worthy again about what the what COP is doing as well as the IETA. Quote, what we are seeing is putting forward a false solutions that appear to be climate action but actually preserve the status quo and prevent us from taking the clear, simple actions to keep fossil fuels in the ground that we know are the real solutions to climate crisis, end quote. Among the IETA's false claims, the IET, IETA say they exist to find the most efficient market-based means of driving down emissions. Okay, that's the problem right there. Everything's market-based. Have you ever noticed among conservatives, you know, their view of the market is almost like a religion. The market is somehow magically going to correct everything. Oh, it's not. All right, it just isn't. The market-based solutions is just another way of saying, we're going to let the rich do whatever they damn well please. And if they want to fiddle while the planet burns, oh well. <clears throat> so, the, a spokesman from IETA was a man named Alessandra Vitelli. To quote Mr. Vitelli, and again, the IETA has false claims. Quote, we have law firms, we have project developers, the guys who are putting clean technology on the ground around the world. They're also members of our association as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. I'm not buying that. And if they are, maybe just to see what the enemy's doing. Seriously, that doesn't mean IETA has any real legitimacy. Mr. Vitelli's trying to make it look like if there's a few people that belong to IETA that are trying, maybe they're dealing with fossil fuel, but they're also trying to, they're playing with a few clean technologies, but somehow that legitimacy rubs off of IETA. Well, it doesn't. Um, Vitelli goes on to say, we're not coming, quote, we're not coming to a shuddering halt today and tomorrow, and suddenly there's going to be no emissions from the combustion of fossil fuels, end quote. And my response to Mr. Vitelli is no one's saying that. Okay, this is a panacea he's offering. This is what they always offer. You know, when you mention to people, even here in St. Louis, well, we have to transition off of fossil fuels. The response I hear, which 
echoes what Mr. Vitelli saying, only less, in a less sophisticated manner, is, well, what are you going to do, live in a cave? Nobody's saying that. But see, the powerful interests that own these fossil fuel companies, they, the only thing they care about is squeezing every last penny from us. Mr. Vitelli goes on and says, quote, there is a process to transition that's underway, and carbon markets are the best way to make sure that transition takes place. Eh, wrong. Not at all. In fact, I would challenge Mr. Vitelli because one of the best ways, for instance, here in the U.S. is to cut off the taxpayer subsidies to fossil fuels they have received for the past 90 years and then take that and make them pay back a lot of it too, and then take those subsidies that fossil fuel receives and create a series of vouchers so that every person in the U.S. that either middle income or low income, they can use that voucher to buy an approved renewable heating and cooling system to pay for the purchase of it and the installation and any upgrades to their home that might be needed in order to do that. And then take those, if there's anything left, there will be. The remainder, take that and take those fossil fuel subsidies and give it to renewables, period. That will do more than anything else. Okay, so, and this is, it ties up together with the comparison between big fossil fuel and big tobacco. So, again, getting back, because I know I'm repeating some things, but... COP26, yes, it was a big fraud. And net zero to 2050, eh, wrong. The problem with net zero is the net part. It's saying, hmm, we will do some things to keep our polluting levels close to what we're already doing, but you're not cutting consumption. And we're at a tipping, we've gone past a tipping point environmentally. You know, maybe 40 years ago, you could have gotten away with that. Not now. We have to cut consumption, period. Net zero won't work. It just won't. And the organizers at the UN of COP26 know damn well that this is, that what I'm saying is true. COP26 was intended from the start to be a fraud. And I would say on that endeavor, it succeeded quite adequately. So let's look at the comparison between big fossil fuel and big tobacco, because big, big tobacco went through something similar when, as I said a little while ago, when the news broke that there was a direct link between the use of tobacco and cancer, you know, all you know what bust loose, and lobbyists from the tobacco industry were involved in legal proceedings, and, as lo- and they were involved with the World Health Organization. As long as they were involved in that, nothing serious happened. But then, and this is coming from campaign groups that are complaining about the COP26. They argue that, and rightfully so, that the World Health Organization never got serious about banning tobacco, quote, until all the lobbyists for the industry were banned from World Health Organization meetings. They want the same treatment for oil and gas companies at COP, end quote. And they're right. That's it in a nutshell. Uh, Pasco Sabido was quoted. He is from Corporate Europe Observatory, which is a phenomenal think tank. 
I have quoted from him many times. I'm working on a book right now, and I use a lot of their information. They are brilliant. To quote Pascal Subito from Corporate Europe Observatory, quote, the likes of Shell and BP are inside these talks, despite openly admitting to upping their production of fossil gas. Hold on, folks. My battery is running low. Oh, boy. I didn't realize that my computer was unplugged as we speak. Give me one second, folks. I don't want to lose everything. Okay, got it. Woo! That was a little scary. <laughs> okay, going back to this for a minute. All right. Whoops. Oh, wait a minute. Let me try this again. Okay, now it's on. It wasn't fully plugged in. Wow, wow, wow. Sorry, folks. Why is it doing this? Hold on. Okay, hate doing this on air. Okay. All right, so anyway, back to this. Don't you love technology? Okay, there's always something that goes wrong. And it kept saying, your battery's running low, your battery's running low. I'm like, okay, where's the plug? All right, getting back to this. Pasco Subito from Corporate Europe Observatory. I will read this quote again. Quote, and, and listen to what he's saying and consider what he's saying. The likes of Shell and BP are inside these talks, despite openly admitting to upping their production of fossil, of fossil gas. Okay? If we're serious about raising ambition, then fossil fuel lobbyists should be shut out of the talks, end quote. And he's right. And um, Corporate Europe Observatory was involved in the analysis that was conducted by Global Witness as well. Okay. So this is what we're dealing with now. Um, again, there's a lot more here. Um, there's a piece here from Global Witness once again. Uh, you know, again, to cap this off, COP26 was doomed to be a big fraud the minute they embraced the myth of net zero. Okay, that's it. Net zero means we're just going to put a Band-Aid on cancer. We're just going to try and lower things, keep it at a point where we're at right now, but we're not going to really cut consumption. won't work. Okay, the science doesn't back it. COP26 was also doomed to fail from the very beginning because, again, you had some of the biggest polluting oil and gas giants and their lobbyists and climate science, climate science deniers. They were all granted full access, including the Blue Zone, and they flooded this Glasgow conference with corporate influence. This never should have been allowed. And this is based on data analysis of the UN's provisional list of named attendees. And it was conducted by, this analysis was conducted by Corporate Accountability, Corporate Europe Observatory, <clears throat> Glasgow calls out polluters and global witness. Okay? And to quote them, it's a, it revealed, quote, the scale at which corporate actors with a stake in the continued burning of fossil fuels have been enjoying access to these critical talks. Okay? Um, you know, the analysis found several other things. 
Number one, quote, if the fossil fuel lobby if the fossil fuel lobby were a country delegation at COP, it would be the largest with five hundred and three delegations. Number two, quote, over 100 fossil fuel companies were represented at COP with 30 trade associations and member organizations. Number three, quote, fossil fuel lobbyists dwarf the UNFCCC's official indigenous constituency by two to one. Four, the fossil fuel lobby at COP is larger than the combined total of the eight delegations from the countries worst affected by climate change in the last two decades, namely Puerto Rico, Myanmar, Haiti, Philippines, Mozambique, Bahamas, Bangladesh, and Pakistan. And five, 27 official country delegations registered, this is a really damning one, quote, 27 official country delegations registered fossil fuel lobbyists, including Canada, Russia, and Brazil. Okay, so this news comes as all these groups from, especially countries that in the global south that bear most of the brunt of climate impact, they, again, they've criticized really what is unequal and I would say prejudicial access to COP26. And some of the barriers to participation included vaccine apartheid, costly travel restrictions, and a lack of safeguarding guarantees. So uh, once again, uh, Murray Worthy, gas campaign leader at Global Witness, said, quote, with the world quickly running out of time to avert climate disaster, this COP absolutely must be a success. The case for meaningful global action must not be diverted by a festival of polluters and their mouthpieces who have no interest in seeing the changes we need to protect people and the planet. The presence of hundreds of those being paid to push the toxic interests of polluting fossil fuel companies will only increase the skepticism of climate activists who see these talks as more evidence of global leaders dithering and delaying. The scale of the challenge ahead means there is no time for us to be diverted by greenwashing or meaningless corporate promises not matched by delivery. It's time for politicians to show they are serious about ending the influence of big polluters over political decision-making and commit to a future where expert and activist voices are given center stage. Pasco Sabido, researcher and campaigner, again at Corporate European Observatory. COP26 is being sold as the place to raise ambition, but it's crawling with fossil fuel lobbyists whose only ambition is to stay in business. The likes of Shell and BP are inside these talks, despite openly admitting to upping their production of fossil gas. If we're serious about raising ambition, then fossil fuel lobbyists should be shut out of the talks and out of our national capitals. Instead, it is governments and communities from countries most affected by climate change they're finding themselves shut out, despite the UK claiming it has ensured an in-person and inclusive climate summit. Clearly that ambition only stretches as far as the fossil fuel industry. We need fossil-free politics, end quote. And Rachel Rose Jackson, who is the Director of Climate Research and Policy at Corporate Accountability. Quote, the architects of the climate crisis cannot build a livable and just future when they've already burnt the house down. With big polluters in the building and so many of those on the front lines left outside due to vaccine apartheid, COP26 is compromised. It is people on the front lines of this crisis, not polluters, who have the life rest we need at this moment, end quote. Now, <clears throat> one other thing I want to mention here. There are a lot of countries outside of Europe and the U.S. and Canada that cannot access the vaccine. And if 
this is an instance where they should have been allowed access, so they could have been inside. How many of those climate deniers are unvaccinated? Again, this is truly evil. So we're moving on here because we're running lower on time. All right. So in conclusion, COP26 is passed, and yet little has been done to stem the tide of this planet's destruction. Now, while AOC issued a statement intended to keep activist momentum going, it did not acknowledge the plain truth, namely that from the very beginning, the COP26 conference was engineered to be a fraud, a.k.a. net zero, the myth of net zero. If the UN is serious about climate devastation caused by wealthy nations burning the lion's share of fossil fuels, then there has to be some equally serious reforms. Here are a few suggestions that I'm making. Number one, any and all lobbyists for the fossil fuel industry or any of its apologists, aka representatives from corporate law firms, so on, public relations people, whatever, they must be legally banned from cop proceedings, period. And if they enter, it's upon pain of criminal prosecution against the planet. Number two, any and all climate science deniers also must be banned from cop proceedings, no exceptions. <clears throat> Any people? A little water here. Three. <clears throat> the UN and COP participants must view the fossil fuel industry, its investors, its corporate attorneys, and its propagandists as the ethical equivalent of the former tobacco industry. Tobacco interests and their lobbyists, etc., were eventually booted from the World Health Organization conferences on the healthy effects. I'm sorry, on the health effects of tobacco use. Nothing serious happened in terms of legal reforms regarding tobacco until they were banned, until the tobacco industry was banned from World Health Organization conferences. COP must take the same approach. Keep in mind, there was a time period in the 1950s and even the 60s <coughs> where medical doctors were telling people, if you want need to relax, your blood pressure's up, Smoke an occasional cigarette. And no, I'm not kidding. This is the same thing. And number four, and this is an important one. This deals with the fact that the UN climate conferences are obviously ethically compromised. When fossil fuel interests are granted access to COP conferences, they are granted a level of legitimacy they do not deserve ever, and then they can push that false equivalence nonsense. So, excuse me, that is COP26, my take on it. So now, drum roll please, I can't do a drum roll very well. The jackass of the week, the Auntie Greta, Naomi Sight. So there was a piece from Huffington Post written by Connor Gibson. And the headline is, this is a year ago, Anti-Greta Climate Denier Naomi Seitz Marched with Neo-Nazis and Promotes White Nationalism. Now, Ms. Seitz was at, um, oh, Lord, it was a, a conservative conference recently, I think this past year, 
where she was complaining that she was misquoted and that the media was cherry-picking things. No, there's pictures here, folks. She's right in the middle of it. She marched with neo-Nazis in 2018, um, and the photo was taken, albeit by anti-fascist activists in Munster, Germany. Um, it was an anti-abortion march that involved a contingency of neo-Nazis, but she was right in the middle of it, um, including Robert Mokoki of the neo-Nazi Mokoki family, the 1,000 White Crosses rally. Um, it wasn't organized by neo-Nazis, uh, admittedly, but included at least one block of people from the groups. And you can see this picture, and there's little Miss Greta right there. I'm not Miss Greta, excuse me, little Miss Naomi. So uh, a lot, there's a quote here, actually. Um, quote, alongside sites, march members of the Identitarian Movement and the Fraternity Franconia, which is the local far-right fraternity, Amongst them, Robert McCokey, a well-known neo-Nazi and activist of the Identitarian Movement. Following her participation in this fundamentalist rally, she posted a video about the Pride Week where she addressed her concerns about homosexuality and the LGBTQI community. And it, it's, there's a lot here, okay? Ms. Sykes has been, um, she's been, uh, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? She's been pushed as the anti-Greta and hired by Heartland Institute to push climate denial. Apparently, they think this will be like the clash of two blonde teenagers, two teenage girls. But the site is 19 years old. She is legally an adult. So any, any, any consideration for her as a juvenile is now gone. And just for the record, when I was 19, I knew better. So um, she is a contractor with Heartland Institute, and this, is, this article is about what they sh people should know about her. So she, um, let's see now, let me kind of, Sight uh, rejects the warnings of scientists, so instead she broadcasts her own opinions about climate science denial on YouTube. She's apparently at 19 without a college degree. She knows more than the scientists. Well, that isn't bad enough. But again, she's got uh, this connection to neo-Nazis that is truly troubling. Um, she was asked a question by Jamie Corey, a documented, which is a watchdog group, and her reaction um, to the question was that she doesn't believe that you can be 100% German if you're Jewish or Muslim. Her quote was, quote, I don't care if you're a Jew or a Muslim or 100% German. That, in, that, that, that indicates quite obviously that she doesn't view non-Christian or people that she doesn't view as white as fully German. Um, there's more. So after the Yom Kippur synagogue shooting, there was a YouTube discussion a year ago, and it was highlighted in a report by German broadcaster ZDF, and Seitz just got, she was talking about an attack on a synagogue in Halle, and it killed two people outside the temple, and she explained that Jews were considered to be, quote, at the top 
of groups who were seen as being oppressed. Ordinary Germans, she said, were at the bottom. Muslims, she added, were somewhere in between. Okay, so this ordinary German thing, this comes straight from, you know, the, the diatribe of white supremacists and neo-Nazis. Okay, it's that buildup. Because Nazism doesn't start all at once. It builds up in these little steps where, you know, there's us and there's them. And, you know, they get preference. And ordinary Germans, according to someone like Seitz, you know, they're not viewed as ever being victimized. Okay. In fact, there's a longer translation of the quote from Bloomberg. Quote, the normal German consumer is at the bottom, so to speak. Then the Muslims come somewhere in between and the Jew is at the top. That is the suppression characteristic, end quote. And those were comments that were reported by the Guardian. Again, yeah, that's neo-Nazi sentiments. So, <coughs> she's also been quoted as claiming that her, um, one of her inspirations, if you are, if you were, is the Canadian alt-right internet activist, if you will, someone named Stephen Molyneux. Now, Molyneux has been described as, quote, an alleged cult leader amplifies scientific racism, eugenics, and white supremacism, end quote. And that is according to the Southern Poverty Law Center. And Molyneux is a real piece of garbage, I'll tell you. Um, there was a question and answer session, according to Insider, and they read Molyneux's following quote to cite, quote, I've always been skeptical of the ideas of white nationalism, of identitarianism, and white identity. However, I am an empiricist, and I could not help but notice that I could have peaceful, free, easy, civilized, and safe discussions in what is essentially an all-white country, end quote. So then insider asked Sight if she was aware of Molyneux's statement, and if she was, was she a fan of his? And Sight replied, quote, I am still a fan of Molyneux, absolutely. So basically, it goes on, okay. Um, her mother, is, Carolyn Sight, is affiliated with the German AFD party which is, um, she works with, in other words, Alternative for Deutschland. It's Germany's far-right nationalist party. They do have ties to neo-Nazis. And that is documented by Politico.eu. In 2018, her mother was pictured um, partying with Milo Yiannopoulos, okay, from Breitbart. And, um, you know, Yiannopoulos pushed this white nationalist ideology into the U.S. Site also had her first essay, published um, by the anti-Islamization blog Philosophio Perennis and was championed by Martin Sellner, who's the leader of the Austrian Identitarian Movement. Identitarian movements, pretty much the same thing as Nazism, folks. Um, so, you know, this goes on, but uh, Naomi Seid was invited as a speaker to a New Year's event of the local branch of the far-right party alternative for Germany. It was in February of 2020. Um, so Rudiger Lukasen was one of the speakers at this event, and Rudiger said, quote, we are proud of the achievements of our mothers and fathers and not ashamed of them, end quote. Lukasen was born in 1951, and his parents were part of the gen generation that enabled 
and supported and probably committed crimes during during the Third Reich of Nazis in Germany. So little Miss Naomi has made friends in all the wrong places and apparently, like her mother, she's very comfortable with identitarian movements and neo-Nazis. So how do the mainstream media respond outside of, you know, HuffPost? Well, Piers Morgan on Good Morning Britain hosted site, uh, no mention of her ties to neo-Nazis or racist white supremacists. In fact, Pierce apologized to little Naomi for, quote, misrepresenting the particular aspect of climate science that she denied. Okay. Pierce Morgan is apologizing to an uneducated 19-year-old who is just being paid to spout off ignorant opinions. Good one. (coughs) Now, Here's the thing, uh, Heartland, you know, Heartland Institute hired her. And Heartland really did, they were happy over what they called fair coverage uh, in the Washington Post. Washington Post helped introduce little Naomi to U.S. audiences um, before a speech at CPAC, okay? Again, the Washington Post said nothing regarding sites albeit you can call it thinly veiled, but support for white nationalism and neo-Nazism. This is what we're dealing with. So, and I may have rambled a little bit, but basically the jackass of the week is Miss Naomi Sykes. And I, you know, you can just, you can listen to little Miss Naomi bray away on YouTube, uh, you know, if you so desire. But it's time for mainstream media to stop giving a path to bigoted conservatives that, you know, have ties to white nationalists and neo-Nazis. All right? Whether they come from corporate ranks or not, this is the problem, all right? Mainstream media needs to stop acting as stenographers for the rich and powerful and actually do something unique, actually produce journalism. So that's the environmental justice report for tonight. Uh, I hope you found it interesting. Next week we're going to be talking about the case of West Virginia versus the EPA. This is a very important case. It could have huge ramifications, including it could serve as as the impetus and precedent to dismantle all types of regulation, not just environmental regulation. Uh, We're talking protective regulation in terms of medicines, medical devices, protections against child labor, protections against abuse of the workplace, and so on and so forth. And unfortunately, you know, everybody loves to hate on Kavanaugh, for instance, but there is a justice on the Supreme Court that is actually far more dangerous than Kavanaugh, and he's been given a pass because he's quiet, and that's Judge Neil Gorsuch. And we're going to be talking about that next week. So with that, I say good night, and God bless us. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. 
Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.